Hey, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at in this uh, session, Philippians 2, 12 through 30, 12 through the end of the chapter. And the first thing to notice is that verse 12 begins with, so then. That's really in Greek, two words that mean therefore, essentially. So it's like therefore, therefore. In other words, we're drawing a conclusion from what has been said previously. And so we really need to keep the context in mind. So before we look at the details of this section, let's make sure we review the context. Philippians 2, 12 through 30 is the conclusion to Paul's address about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel that began at the end of chapter 1. Uh, really what Philippians 2.12 and following is, is a direct appeal to them after describing how he wants them to live. So he said at the end of chapter 1 that he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And if you didn't listen to that section, you should go back and listen to that to make sure you understand how that really is playing off of their cultural situation. So he wants them to walk that way. Um, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is primarily going to show up in unity and harmony. That's at least Paul's main concern for the Philippian church at this point in time. And so he has called them to live in unity in their life together as God's people. And he said that that's going to take humility. In order to live together in unity, they're going to have to practice humility. Well, here in our section on this uh, recording he now is going to appeal to them to live that out. And so Philippians 2, 12 through 30 has three pieces. The first is the direct appeal, the calling them to live out uh, his instructions to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by demonstrating unity through humility. So that's part one. Part two is the example of Timothy. And part three is the example of Epaphroditus. So those are the three pieces we're going to walk through as we look at Philippians 2, 12 and following. So let's jump in and look at some of the details. He says this in Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now even much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So verse 12 is really the direct appeal to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but that needs to be set in, as we've said, the overall context of living in a manner worthy of the gospel and doing so by being unified and practicing humility in your relationship with one another. And notice what he says. He says, just as you always have obeyed, and so he's confident. This church has been faithful. They've obeyed the gospel. They've obeyed Paul's teachings about Jesus. So just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. I, I'm not there with you, Paul, as you recall, is in prison, and so he's not with them. And so they've obeyed when he's there. He's, they've obeyed when he's gone. He's expecting them to do the same thing, and he's calling them to do the same thing. And the way he words that call here in Philippians 2.12 is, Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. That, the way he words that phrase is really important because we want to make sure we don't misrepresent Paul's thought to mean work for your salvation. Paul doesn't believe that. We are saved by grace, Paul teaches, right? So it's not work for your salvation. It's work out your salvation. The idea of that is, is to... Uh, not work to obtain it, but to bring it to fruition, to carry it through to completion is how 
the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament describes this phrase, to carry it through to completion. It's um, not working to obtain it, it's cultivating it, uh, nurturing it, and beginning to live it out. Paul regularly taught, and his letters often follow this format of, he taught, live who you are. So, here's who you are, now live like it. You're a part of God's family, live like it. And so we're not working for our salvation, we're working out the salvation we've already been given. Now that you're saved, live like it. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, and fear and trembling speaks of the honor and the awe and the reverence that God deserves as the infinite, almighty, holy God. And so uh, we have this tension in our relationship with God where God is uh, our beloved Father. We call him Abba, Dad. We um, are completely forgiven and 100% in a right relationship with him. God favors us and looks on us with grace and compassion and kindness. And yet at the same time, because of God's majesty and greatness and holiness and power, we relate to him with a sense of honor and respect and at times deep awe because of his majesty and magnitude and magnificence and greatness. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in a nutshell, what that then would mean would be we do so with great seriousness, great uh, holy fear, great sobriety. This is not something that we take lightly. This is not something we're just casual about. This is something that we we take with the utmost seriousness as a high, really, responsibility and a high privilege that we get to be the people of God. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, he gives sort of the reason why we need to have this fear and trembling, why this is so important. For for is explanatory. He's giving the reason. He's explaining this. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So why work out your salvation and why do so with this utmost seriousness and respect? Well, because it's God who's at work among you. It's God who's at work within you. And that sense of at work in you could be uh, probably better translated, among you, as God's people. This is God's work. God's doing this. You're God's people. Um, it is God who is here. And so this, is, this needs to be taken with the utmost seriousness, with holy reverence. Why? Because God is at work among you. And notice he's at work among you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God provides both the willing and the ability to do this. And so you're not doing this on your own. It's not you producing this on your own. Even our working out our salvation is enabled by and empowered by God's presence and God's power within us. So he's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so work out your salvation, the direct appeal. Now, verse 14 then, Paul, Paul says this, Here's what he wants them to do as they work out their salvation. Here's some of the ways it should play out. Do all things, not some things, not most things, all things, without grumbling or disputing. Um, sometimes translated grumbling or complaining. Uh, but these two words actually show up in the Exodus account 
describing the behavior of the Israelites in the wilderness who were grumbling, murmuring against God, against Moses, against the leadership. They were murmuring together in their tent, right? Just, you know, grumbling and murmuring. So that's the sense of that. And disputing has more to do with arguing and um, debating and, and all that. And so this grumbling and disputing is is sort of... An, a, an interpersonal thing. It's sort of a community thing. Like, do all things as God's people corporately together without murmuring and without disputing, without these rumblings of complaints, these rumblings of discontent, these rumblings of distrust, these rumblings of sedition, whatever it is. You and your life together, remember, unity through humility, you and your life together, you don't, you don't go, did you see what he or she did? Did you see how... I'm not so sure I like what the, the, the leaders of the church are doing. I'm not so sure I like what the elders are doing. And we're not create, stirring up all these little controversies and all these struggles. We're not debating. We're doing all things without grumbling and disputing. So that, verse 15 says, here's the goal of that, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Instead of grumblers and disputers, you will be blameless and innocent. That's the goal. Do you want to be blameless and innocent before God and in this world as God's holy people? Well, then that means you've got to get rid of grumbling and disputing. And so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so in order to stand out as blameless and innocent, we must live together without grumbling and disputing. We must get rid of that sort of contention. Um, and if we do so, we will, we will stand out as above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Uh, our our ability to be the light of the world is directly related to our life together without grumbling and complaining and debating and disputing and murmuring and all of that. And so if we, as God's people, are going to be a city set on a hill, the lights in this world, if we're going to be that, uh, we're going to actually have to live together in harmony and unity without grumbling and disputing. Uh, so among whom you appear as lights in the world, verse 16 then picks up with holding fast the word of life, or maybe better translated, holding forth the word of life. Um, it's not just our holding fast to it, I think, here in context, because of this idea of lights in the world, it's more holding forth the word of life, so that um, in our relationship together, we, we hold forth the word of life in such a way that we demonstrate God's way of doing life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. And so this idea of glory is boast, celebrate, proudly rejoice. And so Paul says in the day of Christ, that is when Christ returns, he will have reason to celebrate because he didn't run in vain or toil in vain on their behalf as their church planter, their founder, their pastor, their apostle. He wants their life together to so model the way of Jesus that he can proudly celebrate them when Christ returns. Now, verse 17 then picks up with uh, using kind of sacrificial imagery for Paul 
uh, about how he views his life, how he wants them to view their life, even in the midst of the sufferings and the difficulty that he's experiencing and that they're experiencing. So verse 17 says, Now, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, in order to understand that, we need to at least have some understanding of the Old Testament sacrifices where some of the sacrifices would be offered, and then on top of that sacrifice, they would pour a drink offering of wine or something like that on this, this sacrifice as an additional offering to that sacrifice. And Paul is picturing now um, his life probably... Even if, he says, probably, even if I don't get out of prison alive and even if I'm executed for my faith here, um, I, I don't see it as, you know, oh, it's such a despondency thing. I see it as like my life is becoming a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith. And so he views his whole life as really an offering to God on their behalf. And he wants them to do the same thing. He wants us to view our life that way. Remember, he's calling us to be gospel-centered. And so live this way. So even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, Paul says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. So even if that's the case, I rejoice uh, and I share that joy with you. Verse 18, you too rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Like, um, And if you recall at the very beginning of this chapter, Paul says that make my joy complete by being of one mind. That's really the heart behind all this. He wants them to live together without disputing, without murmuring against each other, without grumbling and complaining. Live together in unity and in harmony, and in doing so, we'll share our joy with each other. So rejoice in your life. Rejoice in the opportunity to serve Jesus, even through suffering and hardship. Rejoice in that and share your joy with me by living out your faith genuinely together as God's people. Now, that's part one of this section. Part two and part three are the examples of Timothy and the example of Epaphroditus. And they go together because they are stated in terms of sort of Paul's plans, why he sent Epaphroditus back, how he hopes to send Timothy back, and how he himself hopes to come soon. So they're stated in terms of what, what's happening ha with Paul's uh, companions and himself, and even some of his travel plans and some of that. And so they go together and because they're stated that way in terms of sending Timothy, sending Epaphroditus, Paul coming, some scholars have wondered if, well, was Paul actually intending to kind of wrap up the letter here and thus he turned to travel plans and then somehow he got interrupted and then when he came back he had more he wanted to say or whatever. So some scholars have wondered about that. But the fact is, is the only form the letter exists is the form we have it and anything you know, of that nature really is pure speculation and pure conjecture. There's no way we would know what Paul was thinking because he hasn't told us. Uh, and so we really are left to, to guess. Yes, it's a bit odd that here in the middle of the letter, Paul talks about his travel plans a wee bit. Uh, but contextually, these two things do fit. And they fit in the sense that Timothy and Epaphroditus are two living, breathing, concrete examples of the kind of behavior that Paul has called the Philippians to embody themselves. And so he really offers them here as examples to the church of 
living with gospel-centered humility for the sake of others and for the sake of their witness in the community. And so they really are uh, chief examples of that. And personally, I think that's why he brings them up here. And he has to state in terms of his travel plans because that's, you know, that's on the top of his mind too. This is a letter of friendship. Epaphroditus is going to be carrying the letter. But they primarily are examples of the kind of um, behavior he wants them to live. As Frank Thielman says, Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul himself have understood that Christian commitment means losing one's life in order to find it, forfeiting the whole world in order to gain one's soul. And so they are held forth as examples of that sort of behavior. So let's take Timothy, the first chunk, the first example here. Paul says this about Timothy. Let me read you verses 19 through 24 and then just make a few observations about it. Paul writes, Now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And then I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. So he sets forth Timothy as somebody he wants to send to the church fairly soon. The reason for the delay is he wants to wait to see if he doesn't get more of a sense of how things are going to turn out with his case. Once he knows that, he wants to send Timothy so Timothy could give them the report on that. So that's sort of what's going on here. But in describing Timothy, if you listen closely, you'll hear echoes of some of the things that Paul has said directly to the Philippians. So he says in verse 20, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Um, Recall above in chapter 2 where he wants, uh, he's urged the Philippians to consider others more important than themselves, right? To, To think of others more than yourself. Well, Timothy says, does that. Timothy's concerned for your welfare. And I don't have anyone else like him of kindred spirit, of of joint spirit, of you know, who's united in spirit, which is another thing that he's called them to. I don't have anyone who's got the same spirit as me who will actually be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Timothy embodies that value. Verse 21, for they all, other people that he's considered maybe sending or that he, you know, that he knows, they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. Remember, um, again, that's an echo of what he said earlier where he says, um, don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Well, these people seek after their own interests. That's why they're not concerned for your welfare. Timothy, on the other hand, he's concerned about the interest of Jesus, which means he's concerned about you and your welfare. Um, verse 22, he says, you know of his proven worth. Um, why do they know? Well, because Timothy was with Paul when he started the church in Uh, Philippi. And so they know Timothy. They have a relationship with Timothy. In fact, it it appears if we reconstruct Paul's letters and Acts and all that together, that when when Paul left uh, Philippi, he left Timothy behind. 
And Timothy stayed there for a while and, and cared for them and served the church a little bit there to kind of make sure they were well established before he went and was rejoined with Paul. And so they have a long history and a solid relationship with Timothy. And so they know his proven worth. They know how he gave up his life for their well-being and for the sake of the gospel. So they know that, that he served, Paul writes in verse 22, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, right? That he 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 conducted himself as a servant servant of the gospel on their behalf, like a, a child serving his father in partnership with Paul. So uh, Timothy really embodies the values and the virtues that Paul has appealed to the Philippians themselves have. And that's why he brings him up here and and describes him, and he's hoping to send him to them as soon as he learns what the outcome of his trial is going to be. Send him to them so that they will know how it's going. Now, the next example is Epaphroditus. Recall from our background study to the letter, Epaphroditus is a member of the Church of Philippi. Epaphroditus is the one who brought the gift from the Philippian church to the Apostle Paul, brought him some money so that he could be cared for and taken care of in his imprisonment. And so Epaphroditus is is really a servant of the, the Philippian church. Paul is sending him back at this point to the church. In fact, it appears he's the mailman who's now carrying this letter back to the church. And Paul's explaining why that's the case. So let's read again about Epaphroditus, picking up in Philippians 2, verse 25. Paul writes, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And so I, Paul's explaining why Epaphroditus is coming back. Presumably because... Uh, the Philippians would have expected him to stay with Paul longer, maybe? Not totally clear, but uh, the way Paul words it is, I thought it necessary. This was my decision. I thought it was the best thing for Epaphroditus, for you and for everybody, to send him back to you. So, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, and he describes Epaphroditus this way, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. This sense of unity again, camaraderie, this fellow partnership in the gospel spirit. So my brother and my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, right? Epaphroditus was sent to them to be their messenger and their minister. The word translated messenger here is literally an apostle. He, he was their representative. He was the official representative uh, of the church at Philippi. That's the basic meaning of the word apostle. So they're, they're the, the apostles of Christ. They're the representatives of Jesus. But there were other apostles in the sense of representatives of the churches or apostles that were representatives of politicals. They were like ambas- uh, political governors and things like that. They're ambassadors on their behalf. So the word apostle isn't exclusively religious. It means representative, official representative. So Epaphroditus was the apostle of the Philippian church to Paul, their representative, and minister to my need. And the, the word he translate or that he chooses for the word minister here is a unique word that means um, really to to provide religious service. It's actually the word that our word liturgy derives from, and so it's not not the normal word for just assistant. Uh, Diakonos, it's the word liturgos, which has more the sense of, um, in historical context and in general usage, to mean to be a minister of offering religious service. So he came and he was like, he was almost like your priest on my behalf who extended your service to God to me, is how Paul is picturing Epaphroditus' work. So he's your messenger and minister to my need. Um, and the reason Paul thought it was necessary to send him back, verse 26, is this. 
because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And so Paul thought, man, it's just going to be best for everybody if I send Epaphroditus back. He was sick. He was worried about you because you were worried about him. And he just said, you know what? I'm going to write this letter. You go back. You take the letter. You reconnect with him. You let him know how I'm doing. That's best for everybody. So Paul sent him back because Epaphroditus had gotten sick. We're not sure exactly when he'd gotten sick. Um, did he get sick on the way to Paul? Did he get sick when he arrived at Paul? But somewhere since he left Philippi and came to Paul, somewhere in there he got sick. And not just a little bit sick, he got deathly sick. Look at verse 27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Like He was super sick, like, like at the verge of dying sick. Uh, in his in his quest to serve the, the the church and serve Paul, he got really really sick, um, and his sickness was so bad that he almost died. That's why the church at Philippi so concerned about him, and so Paul says, indeed, he was sick in verse twenty seven to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. Like Paul's like, man. My heart would have broken if Epaphroditus had died in serving me on your behalf, and yet God spared him. God had mercy on him. Just a, a real quick aside, pause for a second. I've always found this verse interesting, because remember, Paul has had the ability to heal sick people before, but this verse sounds like he didn't heal Epaphroditus. And so it raises questions about, well, why not? And, and it reminds us that the, the gift of healing that Paul had wasn't like magic that he could just command on cue and all of that. It was really for God's purposes and for the sake of ministry. And in a lot of ways, it seems like for the sake of mission to uh, credential Paul and to credential his message by what Paul calls in Corinthians, the signs of apostleship. And so it wasn't just something he used at random. And apparently in this case, here's Epaphroditus, deathly sick, and Paul's praying for him to get well, but he himself didn't heal him. And so Epaphroditus was deathly sick. Paul would have been so sad if he had died, but God spared him and Epaphroditus got better. Therefore, Paul writes in 2.28, therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I won't have to worry about you guys anymore. I may be less concerned about you. So I'm excited to send him back so you guys can reconnect. You won't be worried anymore. So Paul says, receive him as you would me. Like verse 29, receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Um, not, you know, suspicious. Why did you come back early? And any of that, just, just receive him with all joy. And then he says, hold men like him in high regard. Here's where we get the example of Epaphroditus. Hold men like him in high regard. Why? Verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ. As far as Paul was concerned, Epaphroditus was a servant of Jesus who was representing the Philippian church in bringing their gift to Paul. That's the service to Christ. That's supporting Christ's apostle. And so he came close to death for the work of Christ. Uh, so hold him in high regard. He finishes the thought by saying, risking his life, literally gambling with his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You were not able to come here. You were not able to provide for my needs you know, directly. So you sent him. He was your official representative and he risked his life, gambled with his life to complete this task and to bring the gift and to be a minister to my needs on your behalf. 
So hold men like him in high regard. And so here we have Epaphroditus, who, like Timothy, laid down his life for the sake of Paul, who laid down his life for the sake of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus. And Paul is holding forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples to the Philippian church and by extension to us as to how should we live our lives. Well, we should live our lives considering others more important than ourselves. We should do so gospel-centered so that we're doing that on behalf of Jesus for the sake of the gospel. That's how we should view our lives. That's what Timothy did. That's what Epaphroditus did. And that's what we need to do. Now, let me wrap up this section uh, by just making this one observation. What Paul does with Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think, is extremely invaluable and really instructive to us. We all need concrete examples of faith. And Paul is providing those for the Philippian church through himself, through the example of Jesus. But here, a concrete example, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two people whom they know very well, two people whose lives they have observed and watched, two people that they have clear, close relationship with who provide very down-to-earth, everyday, concrete examples of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You need that. I need that. You can provide that, perhaps, for somebody else. So who in your life can you be a concrete example of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? And who in your life is providing that has provided that example for you? And depending where you're at in your faith journey, those needs are different. If you're early on in your faith journey, you're new to the faith, or you're young in the faith, you need some concrete examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus to show you what it looks like to live this way. If you're more mature in the faith and growing in your faith, then you can provide that for others, and and others need you to provide that. You need to be that for others. That's one of the needs you have in your faith. And so, um, whether Wherever you're at, either find some concrete examples who can provide that for you or be that concrete example you can provide for somebody else so that as as churches we can be strengthened and we can all grow in our faith and do a better job at walking in a manner worthy of the gospel.